0: Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee-Olibest. Today's text is the speech, The Fundamental Principle of a Republic by Anna Howard Shaw, given in New York in 1915. Shaw argues that the fundamental principle of a republic is that its citizens get to participate in civic life and that in denying women the right to vote, America falls short of its own democratic values. At the point that this speech was given, women had been fighting for the right to vote for 67 years. Can you imagine how frustrating that would be? Why was it taking so long? What arguments were being made against women's suffrage that were convincing American men and American women that women should not have the right to vote? Anna Howard Shaw's oration addresses exactly those anti-suffrage arguments. This speech is included on many lists of the 50 best speeches of the entire 20th century. And sure enough, when I read it, I was blown away, not only by its power, but also by its humor. Anna Howard Shaw was funny. Um, But before we get to the speech, I want to introduce my reading partner, Amy Osmond Cook. Amy, I absolutely just adored you from the first moment I met you, and I'm so grateful that you agreed to do this project with me. So thank you so much for being
1: here. Amy, the feeling is just so mutual. You know, when you first meet somebody, on a rare occasion, you just know that you're going to be lifelong friends with that person, and that's how I felt when I met you, uh, thanks,
0: Amy. Okay. Well, let's dive in to kind of Anna Howard Shaw's context and who she was. So Amy, could you give us just a brief biography?
1: Absolutely. Um, Anna Howard Shaw was born on Valentine's Day, 1847. And Shaw was born in England. She moved with her parents to the United States when she was four years old. She grew up in a forest in Michigan helping her mother manage a large property and many children in the wilderness while her father worked in the city and had a thriving career. So Anna did a lot of manual labor, caretaking of her mother and younger siblings when she was a child. So Shaw, she felt called to preach from an early age. Um, as a child, she would spend time in the woods near her house and stand on the tree stumps to preach to the trees of the forest. She was determined to go to college, follow the path that she felt was God's will for her life, and her family was not supportive of that, refused to help her with her goals. So she took up on her own and she had to, quote unquote, pick up the dreaded needle and do work as a seamstress because her preferred work of digging ditches or shoveling coal was not considered suitable for women. So an important moment in her life came when Anna met Reverend Mariana Thompson, a universalist minister who came to preach in Grand Rapids. She went to the service eager to see a woman at the pulpit, and after the service, Shaw confided in Thompson her own desire to pursue the ministry as a vocation. So Thompson strongly encouraged her to obtain an education without delay. In 1873, Shaw entered Albion College, a Methodist school in Albion, Michigan. Since her family frowned upon her um, and decided that they did not like her career path, they wouldn't provide any financial support for her. So at this point, she had been a licensed preacher for three years, and she earned her wages by giving lectures on temperance. After Albion College, Asha attended Boston School of Theology in 1876. She was the only woman in her class of 42 men, and she always felt the, quote, abysmal conviction that she was not really wanted there. She also struggled to support herself financially. So she was already on a tight income and she found it so unfair. And I find it so unfair that the male licensed preachers were given free accommodations in the dormitory and their board cost them a dollar 25. It cost her two bucks to pay rent of a room outside. So she also had trouble finding work. In 1880, after she and Annie Oliver were refused ordination by the Methodist Episcopal Church, despite passing with top exam score, she achieved ordination in the Methodist Protestant Church. So following her ordination, she received an MD from Boston University. um, So she became a doctor. She's like, fine, you're not going (laughs) to, I'm going to break down all the barriers in my lifetime, not just one or two. I love it. I love it. During her time in medical school, she became an outspoken advocate of political rights for women. So um, Shaw first met Susan B. Anthony in 1887, and in 1888, she attended the first meeting of the International Council of Women. Susan B. Anthony encouraged her to join the National Women's Suffrage Association and in 1904 became president of the organization. She was president for the next 11 years. And during the 20th century, Alice Paul and Lucy Burns, NAWSA members, began employing militant techniques like picketing the White House during World War I to fight for women's suffrage. They, like other members, were inspired by the success of the militant suffragettes in England. She was ardently nonviolent and maintained that she was... Quote, "unalterably opposed to militancy, believing nothing of permanent value has ever been secured by it that could not have been more easily obtained by peaceful methods" unquote. she's so ahead of her time and so amazing she was a speaker at the 1919 National Convention on Lynching speaking about her frustration that women could not vote to outlaw the practice of lynching in July of 1919 Shaw died of pneumonia at her home in Moylan, Pennsylvania at the age of 72 only a few months before Congress ratified the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, granting women the right to vote. Oh, doesn't it just kill you? I wish <laughs> it you <did>. killed me. <laughs> it killed me, but I have to think that God's on the other side letting her have a front row seat. Yes, there we go. <laughs> That's how we frame it. That's At right. Any, I love it. At any rate, lar- in large part due to her efforts, women now have yes. the right to vote and so grateful to her for that. Yes, so grateful. Well, thank you, Amy, for acquainting
0: us with this amazing woman. Now, finally, we will get to the text. Um, I'm going to start out with um, the very first thing that Anna Howard Shaw says. She says, quote, when I came into your hall tonight, I thought of the last time I was in your city. 21 years ago, I came here with Susan B. Anthony, and we came for the for exactly the same purpose as that for which we are here tonight boys have been born since that time and have become voters and the women are still trying to persuade american men to believe in the fundamental principles of democracy and i never quite feel as if it was a fair field to argue But, um, I just wanted to pause and say, it's not, it's not a fair field. It's a really important point that she makes. And we've discussed this on multiple episodes already, but I want to bring it up again. It feels a little bit like that, you know, that part of the Bible where Queen Esther is fasting and praying and she goes into King Xerxes just hoping that he feels benevolent enough to raise his scepter and let her talk and not execute her. And I just, it's just such, um, a humiliating position to be in to kind of have to grovel and go in and say like, please don't kill me, please listen to me. And it's just not a fair power dynamic. And it gives me sympathy for people of color trying to argue for their rights when they're talking to the people in power and they're all all white, right? And And for LGBTQ plus people, Trying to convince straight people to please let them have the same civil rights that straight people already enjoy—that's um, an important one to me. To that, that I just—it gives me sympathy for like how that would feel if if you're just trying to appeal to a panel of people who can't relate to you, and they and they have all the power. It's just not a fair field of argument. Okay, back to the speech. Uh, the next thing that she says: "Quote." if we trace our history back, we will find that from the very dawn of our existence as a people, men have been imbued with a spirit and a vision more lofty than they have been able to live. (laughs) They have been led by visions of the sublimest truth, both in regard to religion and in regard to government that ever inspired the souls of men, end quote. Um, I love that She's able to see the founding of the nation with nuance and complexity, um, that the principles upon which the nation was founded were groundbreaking and um, really progressive in comparison to the feudalism and the aristocracy and the religious persecution of Europe. So I think what she's saying is like, this is a, it really is a step in a good direction, But even from the very beginning, the founders had really egregious blind spots, and those blind spots continued to cause immense suffering for other people, and they didn't live up to their own stated ideals. But I I really appreciate that she can see all of the different complex components of the founding of the country. I thought that was interesting. And again, like you pointed out, ahead of
1: her time, I -hmm. think, in the way she saw it. Totally agree. And it is also pretty interesting. This, you know, her saying, oh, you know, these these amazing groundbreaking ideals are, you know, she she lauds them, praises them, and then in the very next section uh, uses it to, com- you know, to showcase the inequities, which I think drives the point home even more. So she says here, Governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed, and the voice of the people is the voice of God, and the orator forgets that in the people's voice there is a soprano as well as a bass. If the voice of the people is the voice of God, how are we ever going to know what God's voice is when we're content to listen to a bass solo? (laughs) (laughs) So well said. Now, if it is true that the voice of the people is the voice of God, we will never know what the deity's voice in government is until the bass and soprano are mingled together, the result of which will be the divine harmony. Take any of the magnificent appeals for freedom which men make, rob them of their universal application, and you take the very life and soul out of them. So as a musician myself, I love that analogy of a choir singing, and I think it's just absolutely true. It's, it's, it rings hollow and rings untrue when um, a universal ideal is not applied universally. So there's an, another quote from the section where it says, we have our theory, our beliefs, but as suffrages, we have but one belief, one principle, one theory. And that is the right of a human being to have a voice in the government under which he or she lives. Whenever any question is to be settled in any community, then the, people of that community shall settle that question the women people equally with the men people that is all there is to it (laughs) (laughs) i love she just oh man she just cuts through it like a knife she's like Uh really what's the fundamental truth that's all there is to it so anyway it's very very well said and very interesting um i agree on that aim
0: oh well i mean yeah, I I just think she's so funny. The the women people equally with the men people and you can tell she's saying that like to be funny and just kind of that um casualness of her speech. Again, I'm like, "Whoa, when was this? When was this given?" It just kept surprising me. I I loved it. Okay, the next part of the speech that we want to highlight, and this is the part that we'll kind of spend the most time on because it's really the meat of the speech, um, are the arguments that people were making against women's right to vote. That was just so interesting to me. Um, And here's what Anna Howard Shaw says, quote, when it comes to arguing their case, they bring up all sorts of arguments. And the beauty of it is they always answer all their own arguments. They never make an argument, but they answer it. When I was asked to answer one of their debates, I said, "What's the use? Divide up their literature and let them destroy themselves." And <laughs> <laughs> um, she's so funny. Okay, so then she gives some examples of how they're, they are actually arguing opposite things. So she's undermining. She's using this, you know, rhetorical device. She's she's um, pointing out how they are are arguing things that are incompatible with each other. Right. So here's the first example. She says, quote, I was followed up last year by a young married woman from New Jersey. She left her husband home for three months to tell women that their place was at home and that they could not leave home long enough to go to the ballot box.
1: I loved that one. That one was one of my favorites.
0: (laughs) I loved it too. The irony, like you have to be paying attention or the irony will just get past you. But so funny. Um, and then she continues with this woman who's who's sincerely arguing against women's suffrage. Um, Shaw quotes this woman. She says, well, she doesn't really quote her. Shaw describes it this way. Quote, she started by proving that it was no use to give the women the ballot because if they did have it, they would not use it. And she had statistics to prove it. If we would not use it, then I really cannot see the harm of giving it to us. We would not hurt anybody with it, and what an easy way for you men to get rid of us. No more suffrage meetings, never any nagging you again. No one could blame you for anything that went wrong with the town. If it did not run right, all you'd have to say is, You have the power, why don't you go ahead and clean it up? Then the young lady, unfortunately for her first argument, proved by statistics, of which she had many, the awful results which happened where women did have the ballot, what awful laws have been brought about by women's vote, the conditions that prevail in the homes and how deeply women get interested in politics because women are hysterical and we cannot think of anything else, we just forget our families, cease to care for our children, cease to love our husbands, and just go to the polls and vote and keep on voting for 10 hours a day, 365 days in the year. If we ever get to the polls once, you will never get us home, and they will not do anything but vote. Now, these are, very, these are two very strong anti-suffrage arguments, and they can prove them by figures and that's the end of the quote. It's a long one, but I just think it is so hilarious. Yeah, it so-
1: just showed the absurdity of the whole thing and she just nailed it. Yeah. We just go to the polls and not stop voting, vote 365 days a year, all the time. It was it was pretty amazing. Yeah. So, um, here's another set of arguments and she kind of uses the same device. Then they will tell you that if women are permitted to vote, it will be a great expense and no use because wives will vote just as their husbands do. Even if we have no husbands, that would not affect the result because we would vote just as our husbands would vote if we had one. How I wish the anti-suffragists could make men believe that. If they could make men believe that, the women would vote just as they wanted them to do. Um, You think we would ever have to make another speech or hold another meeting? would have the vote whether we wanted to or not and then and then the very one who will tell you that the women will vote just as their husbands do will tell you in five minutes that they will not vote as their husbands will and then the discord in the homes and the divorce why they have discovered that in colorado there are more divorces than there were before women began to vote but they've forgotten to tell you that there are four times as many people in colorado today as there were when women began to vote <laughs> it was pretty fantastic and she just you know really like nails the whole, you know, really undercuts all of those arguments really, really easily. And she does it with humor in a way that really show showcases how absurd it all is. Yeah, it really was. But the, here's another interesting part of the story. Um, a gentleman told me a story in California. This is Shaw speaking. and when he was talking, I had a wonderful thing pass through my mind. He said that he and his wife had lived together for 20 years and never had a difference of opinion in the whole 20 years. And he was afraid if women began to vote, that his wife would vote differently from him. And then the beautiful harmony which they had had for 20 years would be broken. And all the time he was talking, I could not help wondering which was the idiot. Because I knew that no intelligent human being could live together for 20 years and not have a difference of opinion. All the time he was talking, I looked at this splendid type of manhood and thought, How would a man feel being tagged up by a little woman for 20 years saying, Me too, me too? I would not want to live in a house with a human being for 20 years who agreed with everything I said. The stagnation of a frog pond would be hilarious compared to that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, you know, that is a really good point. So um, there's another passage in here that I think is very interesting and I think really captures how she feels about men in her time. Okay, here it is. Now, it may be that the kind of men that the anti-suffragists live with is that kind, the kind that can't tolerate differences of opinion. But they are not the kind we live with, and we could not do it. Great big overgrown babies cannot be disputed without having a row. While we do not believe that men are saints by any means, we do believe that the average American man is a fairly good sort of fellow. And I think that that is really awesome that she basically, she just knocks those guys down a notch and was like, you guys quit being babies. You're decent people. Just quit, you know, quit getting your undies in a bunch and just come to the table and be be normal people. And so I thought that was pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, I agree. I I really resonated with that approach, definitely. And it, it's just useful. And I think strategically, it makes sense too to get men enlisted in your cause. And if you come at them with fist swinging and accusing them of being horrible, horrible people who are ruining your life intentionally, I, I don't want to listen to someone who's talking to me like that. So um, um, it's also smart, but you get the sense that it's in that it's um, genuine also that she just she doesn't hate men. She likes men and she thinks they're good people. So that's a great quote to bring up. Okay. um, Shaw goes on to talk about another argument that the anti-suffragists were making at the time. She says, and talking about time, you would think it took about a week to vote. A dear good friend of mine in Omaha said, now Miss Shaw, and she held up her child in her arms, is not this my job? I said, it certainly is. And she said, How can I go to the polls and vote and neglect my baby? I said, Has your husband a job? And she said, Why, you know he has. I did know it. He was a banker and a very busy one. I said, Yet your husband said he was going to leave work and go down to the polls and vote. And she said, Oh, yes, he is so very interested in the election. Then I said, What an advantage you have over your husband. He has to leave his job and you can take your job with you, and you do not need to neglect your job. Um, <laughs> I love that. Um, she continues. I am going to read just a little bit more because it's just so on point. She says, quote, is it not strange that the only time a woman might neglect her baby is on election day? And then the dear old aunties hold their ha- hold up their hands and say, oh, you've neglected your baby. A woman can belong to a whist club. And I'm just going to interject. Whist was a game. Think of it like we now think of Bunko Nights or something like that. Um, they would play whist. Um, and then resuming the quote, and go once a week and play whist. She cannot take her baby to the whist club. She can go to the theater, to church, or a picnic, and no one is worrying about the baby, but to vote and everyone cries out about the neglect. You would think on election day that a woman grabbed up her baby and started out and just dropped it somewhere and paid no attention to it. <laughs> <laughs> It used to be asked when we had the question box, who will take care of the babies? I did not know what person could be got to take care of all the babies, so I thought I would go out west and find out. I went to Denver and found that they took care of their babies just the same on election day as they did on every other day. They took their baby along with them. When they went to put a letter in the box, they took their baby along. And when they went to put their ballot in the box, they took their baby along. If the mother had to stand in line and the baby got restless, she would joggle the go-kart. And when she went in to vote, a neighbor would joggle the go-kart. And if there was no neighbor, then there was the candidate, and he would joggle the cart.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I love how she was like, hmm, I really wasn't sure what people did on election day, so I went to Denver. And you could just hear (laughs) the sarcasm dripping from her voice. It's fantastic. (laughs)
0: <laughs> totally oh she's so funny um okay we're going to wrap up there's just one more quote that i want to read there's there's a long passage that we're going to skip but um just i'm going to mention it to listeners there's a really heartrending beautiful passage um where she talks about the horrors and the tragedies of world war 1 this speech was Again, it was given in 1915, so they were a year into World War I. And I really wish we had time to read it because it's so moving as she talks about mother's grief over the sons that were dying in war. And she makes a powerful argument for women using their vote and being involved in government in order to use love and diplomacy um, in order to avoid future wars. Shaw says, quote, We women do not want the ballot in order that we may fight, but we do want the ballot in order that we may help men to keep from fighting, whether it is in the home or in the state. Just as the home is not without the man, so the state is not without the woman. And you can no more build up homes without men than you can build up the state without women. We are needed everywhere where human problems are to be solved." Men and women must go through this world together, from the cradle to the grave. It is God's way, and the fundamental and the fundamental principle of a republican form of government. And end quote. And of course, by republican, she means like a republic, as in a democracy, right. um, not a political party. But I thought that was just a, a powerful way. Of, of wrapping up the speech. Um, do you have one thing that you would like to share, Amy, that was like a, t- a main takeaway from you that you'll remember
1: from the speech? Well, I think that that last quote really sums it up for me. Um, I love the fact that she, she truly expresses her belief in equality, not by lifting women up above men, but pairing them together and showing where they where men and women both belong, they both belong in the state and they both belong at home. And I I think the way that she, um, did that was, was really beautiful. And that is how I also want to, um, position myself and, um, feminism and, um, kind of my political leanings is, is equally, you, you hear equally yoked, but in a very true way. What about you? What what's something that you remember that you'll take away from this? Um I think for
0: me the the arguments against women voting were really interesting to me. Um again kind of realizing how long it took to pass the 19th amendment um and and understanding why and what people's resistance was and like you pointed out so well what were, what were they scared of? What were their fears? Um and, and that helped me to understand that historical moment better. Um, but I was also just kind of blown away by how current the issues felt, even though women have had the right to vote for 100 years now. Um, again, like I said before, I guess that some of those arguments just stel- still felt relevant to me. They're still being used to keep women from participating fully in society. Um, people, like we said, people still say like, oh, well, that might cause, like you pointed out. Um, That couple that you know that it, it will cause contention, you know, it might cause contention in my family if I go back to school. And that pressure is, you know, unequally put on the woman to keep the peace and make sure that the boat doesn't get rocked. And so she takes one for the team always. It's just assumed that the woman will, or, you know, who will take care of the children? In my view, both parents should be asked that question. Who will take care of the children? It's a, it's a legitimate question. Like, like you said, but the, the fact that it, um, those arguments are still used to keep women from having equitable relationships, maybe with men in their marriages and from, it keeps women from achieving their own human potential to keep them from from participating out in the world how they choose the way that men do. So, um, yeah, I agree with Anna Howard Shaw. Human beings are really smart. We can come up with new, better ways of doing things so that everybody can participate in a system that's more just and where one group of adults doesn't make restrictive rules for another group of adults. And I just really think that we can rise to the occasion. Um, I think we're capable. So. I love
1: that. That Very well said and very well summed up.
0: Well, Amy, thank you. Thank you again for this discussion. I learned so much. So
1: fun. So did I. And what a wonderful opportunity for me to be able to reconnect with you and, and talk about things that really matter. Me too.
0: So grateful. Thank you so much for being here.